They always knew what the island could do, the spirits that dwelled there. The power that rose out of the northern inlet was what later would be called Vancouver Harbor, the dark pines stretching toward the sky. The medicine men of the North and South Salish each laid claim. Both sides brought their warriors with them to fight for the land. They were evenly matched, and blood stained the shore. The exhausted southern warriors infiltrated the northern camp by night, taking the northern women, children, and elderly as hostages. They offered the North a deal, lives for lives. If the North chose to continue fighting, the southern warriors would kill every captive they had. But if the North were to sacrifice themselves, their loved ones could go free. The northern warriors never once hesitated. They stood tall and proud by the shoreline and waited to be pierced by the southern arrows. The southern warriors showed kindness to the men, letting them see their family go free. Then they raised their bows and let fly. The next morning, the shoreline should have been empty. The southern warriors had cleared away the bodies and were ready to stake their claim on the territory. But there was something new growing on the island. They called it the fire flower. Thousands of crimson blooms covered the shore where the northern Salish fell, grown in ground redder than a sunset, and water choked with blood. Frightened by this last stand, the southern warriors rowed their canoes away. They had realized the magic of the island did not belong to them. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Dead Man's Island, a spot of land in Vancouver Harbor that has been a burial ground for thousands of years, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five star review wherever you listen. Squamish chief Capilano told Mohawk writer E. Pauline Johnson in the early 1900s, the white people call it Dead Man's Island. It is their way. But we of the Squamish call it the Island of Dead Men. It's Chief Capilano who related the story of the battle that gave the island its name, a tale of warriors and medicine men fighting for land that was coveted for its magical power. A tale that ended with a sacrifice that never should have been needed. And so they agreed to share it, the living and the dead. A community in the in-between. 
It became a burial ground for many Canadian First Peoples as they passed through the ever-narrowing inlet, coming from the Pacific to the Salish Sea to the Strait of Georgia and further inland towards what is now known as Vancouver, British Columbia. Ornate wooden coffins or soft shrouds held corpses that were suspended high on platforms in the pines. This tree burial puzzled fur traders and settlers who came upon them in the Great Lakes and Pacific Northwest regions of what would later become the United States and Canada. The white men came for the furs and the fish, but on the island, what they wanted was the trees. The trees that had held the coffins of ancestors for centuries. John Morton was a businessman and a realist. He'd avoided the smallpox epidemic that was decimating Vancouver Island and had a little money to find a new means of revenue. A government surveyor offered Morton's cousin and business partner, Samuel Brighouse, the deed to an island rich in lumber for $5. Samuel rebuffed the surveyor, saying they already had enough land. Morton had to contain his frustration as he pointed out that they had land, but there was nothing useful on it. Morton spoke with the surveyor and set up his own potential deal, pending a look at the so-called Dead Man's Island himself, in order to make sure that the land had the potential for continued growth. The surveyor was ready to agree, but he said he would be remiss if he didn't mention the island's reputation. It had been used by the coastal Salish and Squamish nations as a burial ground. Morton froze. He remembered a cold night in his cabin at Bird Inlet. They had been the first white people to settle on the peninsula that divided Vancouver Harbor from the English Bay. The settlers in the south called Morton and his friends the Three Greenhorns because of their large purchase of the remote land. They built a cabin far above the water and set up relations with the Squamish, who occupied the land but also worked in the surrounding sawmills and factories, a hybrid life of nature and industry. He had been alone and tired. This had rarely bothered him since he'd sailed for Canada as a young man. But this time, every creak and groan of a small wooden house made his heart flutter and his breath short. The chanting caught his attention first. It started softly. He had managed to convince himself it was just a trick of the wind. But the noises grew and grew. He rushed to put out his fire. His walls shook with the roar of a crowd chanting in harmony. He could only pray that they hadn't seen the smoke, didn't know that he was there. But then, a woman's screams cut through the night. Her desperate pleas brought Morton to his door but he couldn't summon the will to open it. His ears told him he was far outnumbered, and his shotgun hadn't seen use since he bought it from a miner in the Caribou Goldfields. The dancing light of torches framed them all in silhouette, but he could make out the woman screaming for her life. The men threw a rope around the branches of a tree. The chants drowned her out again as they looped the noose around her neck. They strung her up as high as they could, 
her toes struggling to find the branches just below her feet. Morton was afraid to move, afraid to breathe. He knew that he would join her amongst the tangle of branches if he interfered, and he cursed his cowardice and self-preservation as she jerked on the rope. Her body twitched long after the group left. They didn't bother to watch her die. The gossip said the woman had killed a baby, and this had been her punishment. The settler law enforcement was all too keen to leave any questions to the local tribes, as the act had been carried out on unincorporated land, and no one was particularly inclined to parse out who'd grabbed which torch, pulled on which rope, dragged which woman from her home. Now the whole town said they didn't know her, regardless of who she belonged to. It was strange how quickly those things could happen, the dead and dying, forgotten. Except Morton never forgot. Somehow, when the wind blew or the waves clutched at the sand before being carried back out to sea, he always heard her screaming. His first glimpse of the island was obscured by a heavy blanket of fog. White mist swirled around the water and obscured everything but the top branches of the trees. For a moment, he felt that he was traveling along the river Styx, rowing closer and closer to the underworld. He hoped that some of the fog would clear away as he neared the island, but it clung tightly to the landscape. Morton wanted to turn around and row back to the safety of the colony, but something was calling him from the island. Some strange force was pressing on his shoulders, urging him to go forwards rather than back. The canoe pulled closer to the island, and Morton's heart stopped. Blood was splattered across the shore. It was still scarlet red, as though someone knew he was coming and left him a warning to turn back. His canoe reached the shore, and he realized the blood was a trick of his imagination. What had inspired such grisly visions was actually quite beautiful up close. A row of thousands of flowers. Their dark red color surprised him, but he shook off the remnants of his nerves and chose to take this as a sign that life still grew on the land. He could use that to his advantage. He trampled over the flowers as he stepped onto the shore, not noticing that new crimson blooms sprang up immediately in the footprints he left behind. Morton could barely see in front of him in the fog. He thought he'd made out the outline of trees, but when he stepped forward, nothing was there. He inched forward with his hands outstretched, eyes searching for discernible shapes in the mist. Something hard crushed to loose powder beneath his feet. He did not even bother to look down. The wind rattled something in the trees. It was hard and heavy sounding, unlike the thin branches he'd seen from the river. More disturbing, it sounded wet. Morton had seen many strange things as they'd headed west. Magnificent trees as round and wide as houses, 
herds of woolly buffalo that extended to the horizon and horned animals taller than two men. But the most striking had been the great cats with pointed ears and long teeth. He'd spent many a night on his cross-country trek watching the branches above him for a pair of feline eyes in the dark, still holding the remnants of a mangled carcass in its mouth. He didn't take kindly to the notion of being hunted. Morton kneeled down onto the ground, dragging his hands through the soil. He could not see through the fog well enough to discern what he was holding, but it felt heavy in his hands. He heaved the object up and launched it into the trees in the direction of the sound. The heavy rock smashed into something. It knocked loose and came crashing down, nearly missing Morton's own head. The fog began to clear. What had fallen so close to him was a cedar box the size of a standing man. The splintered wood lay across the forest floor, but Morton hardly noticed it. His eyes were glued to what the box had held. A jumble of bones and human hair. Morton scrambled away from the box, his hands slipping in the moist ground, palms growing raw on the intermittent grit. But each movement brought a renewed sense of fear. It hadn't been pebbles crunching beneath his feet. The forest floor was littered with yellowed bones, pieces of hair, and some tiny spots of flesh. He looked up again, watching the fog lift, as if blown by some ancient force's great breath. And there, in the trees, he saw her again, the anguished woman her long, dark hair covering her face as her feet strained to reach the branch just below her swollen toes. On shaky legs, he raised himself up. Fear locked his muscles tight, making it hard for him to move. He took the deepest breath he could manage, and he ran. As he broke for the safety of the canoe, he couldn't stand to look at the island's floor. He crashed into trees and tripped over bones, catching himself midair when he was lucky. But that luck didn't hold. He fell forwards into the ground, his mouth filling with dirt. There was a presence with him, maybe several, pushing him farther down. He couldn't breathe. He feared that he would die here, becoming another set of bones that crowded the land. And then, they were gone. He turned over on his back and relished the scent of the fresh air. Morton pulled himself back up and walked slowly towards the canoe, keeping his steps as quiet as he could. He tried to stifle his gasp when he nearly slipped entering his canoe. He braced for the worst, but all he heard was the wind. Morton paddled backwards, but couldn't shake the feeling that someone was paddling alongside him. He tried to follow the sound with his gaze, but he was alone. As he approached the comfort of Burrard Inlet, he saw Matthias Joe, one of the Squamish youths, 
adjusting his net at the fishing spot he'd shown Morton when he'd first come to the slant. The young man smiled gently at Morton and helped him out of the canoe. Do not buy the land, he said, taking the shaken settler's hand into his own. It is the island of dead men. The living are not meant to be there. Matthias Joe became a leader of the Squamish in 1895, taking the name Capilano. He became a major advocate for native culture and native rights, joining with Mohawk writer E. Pauline Johnson to write a collection of Vancouver legends, which included his account of Morton's fateful journey to Dead Man's Island in 1865. Morton and his associates, Samuel Brighouse and William Hailstone, also known as the Three Greenhorns, left their land before it became Vancouver's bustling West End, and the surveyor was unable to interest anyone else in Dead Man's Island, which stood at less than 0.015 square miles. The tall trees filled with corpses would stay standing for now. Coming up, we'll have more stories from the strange burial island. Now, back to the story. In the 1800s, white colonists began to carry on the tradition of the Canadian First Peoples. Countless members of Vancouver's forgotten dead were sent to Dead Man's Island, often buried in unmarked graves. Casualties of the growing Canadian Pacific Railway Victims of Vancouver's Great Fire of 1886, merchant seamen and sawmill workers far from home, sex workers, social outcasts, lepers, people who committed suicide, and anyone who couldn't afford a burial plot. No matter where they came from, it seemed to be universally agreed that the island belonged to those who had passed on. But in 1888, the spirits were asked to share Dead Man's Island, if only temporarily. It became a quarantine area for smallpox patients in 1888, as the epidemic Morton had feared in the early 1860s reared its head again. A rudimentary hospital was hastily built to house the island's growing population. But it was a hospital in name only. Anyone who crossed from the harbor to these misty shores was doomed to die. The workers stationed there called it the Pest House. Zelina did not feel ill, but that had not stopped her husband, Elias, from dragging her aboard the boat to Dead Man's Island. She fought and screamed and called for his arrest, but no one would listen to her. She knew that his mistress had always wanted to take her place, and now the other woman would get her chance. They would get married, while Zelina wasted away on an isle of limbo, surrounded by the wretches and moans of the dying, gazing through the mist at the opposite shore that had been her home. She had argued with the boat captain that if she had been exposed to smallpox, so had her husband, but a bribe was all it took for Elias to deposit her into the care of the state on an island that she would never be able to escape. The captain said something about staying in her place. She launched herself at him, but large men in white clothes caught her in a vice-like grip. 
they tied her hands in front of her. Zelina knew, of course, what smallpox looked like, but there was something unnerving about seeing it in droves. Those that could stand were along the shore, staring out into the unknown. Pustules consumed their skin, as if a ghoulish mottled mask borrowed from some bruised creature had been sewn onto the victim's gaunt faces. She fought a shiver. The captain yanked her out of the boat. There were pustules on his hands. When he could no longer steer his boat, he would join their ranks. She struggled again, and he threw her to the wet sand. The few inches of water pulling at the shore chilled her. She rolled onto her back, trying to recover the wind he'd knocked out of her. She let her head fall back, and her eyes caught the very tops of the trees behind her. She remembered the stories about boxes of bones falling from the sky. But the trees were barren now, still towering in their majesty in the slowly clearing fog. She did not know who had removed the dead or why, but some part of her suspected it was to make room for more. She brought herself up again, not bothering to brush the wet sand from her clothes. Jagged strips of cedar stuck up from the ground, grave markers with flat, empty faces. There were so many buried here. She wanted to stop and look, examine the pieces of wood, and see if there was some small detail that described the human within. Nothing scared her more than being forgotten. But a sharp push between her shoulder blades made it clear that she wasn't in charge of her own fate. Zelina was marched to a small shack halfway across the island. It was a special lodging place for those who had only just started showing signs of the disease. It was silly if one thought about it. Whether they were kept farther away from the others or not, everyone would die here. There had been claims, illustrious claims, that those who could survive the plight of smallpox would be welcomed home. But it was a lie. There were no survivors. No boats waited on the shore to take the living back to civilization. They couldn't chance it. All the danger had to be purged. What little privacy she had in her own home was now gone. Beds were stacked next to each other in neat rows. There was no space to sit or move about. Not that it mattered to those who were infected. Their joints screamed with every twitch and turn. Every point that made contact with the surface ached and cried. And standing brought no relief either. The very act of existing was torture. But Zelina was healthy. She wanted to be able to explore the island and find a quiet place for herself. Her first night, she lay in bed and listened to the chorus of coughing and hacking. She could feel a tightness in her throat, but she refused to believe that she could be getting sick. In the land of the dying, she prayed that she would be the sole survivor, the lucky one who could steal away from the island and back on to safer shores. As first light hit, she crept outside the confines of the cabin and into the woods. 
She hoped to find solace there, a moment to think in the quiet. She stepped forward, savoring the silence. As she began to fully wake from the haze of nightmare-filled sleep, she saw a glow from the tall trees in the distance. The majestic columns near the altar of this nature-made cathedral. At first, it seemed to be a refraction of the red light of the rising sun, but dawn's rays hadn't yet crested the horizon. Zelina closed her eyes, nearly blinded by the growing light. The light left its imprint even on her closed eyes, but then it was gone. The forest had gone dark. Still, there was a man in front of her, tall, handsome, though she couldn't tell you why she thought so. He had no features, a kind of luminescent silhouette, though he only stood inches from her. She could feel the heat from his glowing skin. There was such warmth there, such power and safety. She reached out, her fingers seeking to breach the blinding light. The light enveloped her, and she shut her eyes. When she opened them the next instant, she realized she was on her back. There was something pressing against her. She could feel the wind against her cheeks. In a panic, she tried to sit up. Her eyes slid to her left, and all she could see was sky. To her right was a mountain of wood and pine needles. She took a breath and shifted her eyes downward, seeing the wooden planks beneath her and the ground far below. She scrambled back, resting her back against the trunk. She had been sleeping in a tree. She got up her nerve to look down again, to find some kind of foothold. But she saw the ground first. A group of smallpox patients looked up at her, pustule-covered mouths agape. She fell down, hitting every branch along the way. They didn't help her up. Her skin felt hot, and her head pounded terribly. But she was miraculously alive. She couldn't tell if the pounding was from her fall or the first signs of smallpox. She needed to escape, but the eyes of her ghoulish roommates stayed on her. They said she was not the first person to go missing and be found hours later in the trees, where the coffins and shrouded corpses had once waited. It never ended well. Zelina tried to resist the siren call of the outdoors the next day, but her curiosity got the better of her. The trees glowed with the same warm light, but the man was different now. He was shorter and wider, his arms hanging limply at his sides. Still, she reached out and touched the figure. There was a gentle lapping of water against her face. The rest of her body burned with pain, but the water was a welcome respite. It was night again. Her body was outlined by bright red flowers. Instead of making any attempt to move, Zelina laid on the shoreline as she had when she first arrived. She looked at the stars. She had been carried farther away from the shack this time. If she continued to visit the strange man, 
Maybe she would be in the captain's boat the next time she awoke. Maybe that could be her chance to escape. She had felt a sense of injustice in that moment that was somehow rectified now, as if some force knew how very wrong it all was. Zelina did not get the chance to sneak out the next morning. When she returned to the shack, they were waiting for her. They tied her to the bedpost. They were afraid, but they would still not tell her why. Her back ached, and her hairline itched. She knew now that she was succumbing to smallpox. Still, she rubbed her wrists raw, trying to fight her bindings, covering the ropes and pus from the growing bumps on her skin. If there was a chance she could get off this island and get back to her home, she would take it. Three long days passed in agony. Zelina's wrists bled. Her body convulsed with pain. Her hatred for Elias grew. He had done this to her, and there would be no justice meted out to him. On the fourth day, she woke to find her restraints had been loosened. She snuck out of the shack that had become her prison and back into the woods. Her body protested with each step, but she could not be dissuaded. There was no man this time. In his place was a figure outlined in a hazy red. Its shape was ever-changing. The legs of an elk kicked. The torso of a cougar breathed deep. The hands of a raccoon reached out, and a misshapen lump of a head with a salmon's clear eyes fixed Selena with a strange, sideways gaze. Each motion was accompanied by an eerie creak of wood, as if, despite all its beast-like qualities, it was actually an ancient tree made animate. It frightened her, but she could not turn back now. It was ugly. But somehow, it radiated the same energy the glowing man had. A promise of strength she would find in it, and in herself. This time, when she awoke, she was not on the island. Instead, she was in her familiar home. The wooden walls that her husband had built with his own hands used to bring her so much comfort, his wedding present to her a sign of his promise to keep her forever. Now she felt sick looking at them. She had earned her freedom, but she did not have long left. Her body was covered in pustules. In a day or two, she would be gone. Another cedar plank added to the graveyard, and no one to mourn her. She watched her husband sleep, still beautiful in his unkindness. The mistress was nowhere to be found. Perhaps she had no interest in playing house. Yet he had not returned to his wife, abandoned on the Isle of Death, and he slept soundly still. A wicked idea came to her. She could get justice for herself. It would be only too easy to right this wrong. And then... She could die in peace. Zelina moved silently across the room. Elias did not stir. 
She pulled back the blanket she had quilted for him as they courted, rubbing the soft fabric between her swollen fingers. She laid on the bed next to him. In comparison to her own searing flesh, his skin was cool, comforting. He didn't wake up as she got closer to him. Were it not for the difference in her appearance, they would almost look like a happy couple, wrapped in each other as lovers always were. Zelina closed her eyes and drifted off to sleep. Elias woke the next morning to a corpse in his bed. His wife was dead. His joints began to ache and his skin grew hot. In this life and the next, they'd sworn the day she'd given him this quilt. This quilt that covered them when he woke with her corpse in his arms. She'd come back to the home he'd built for her. She was with him in sickness and in death. He heard the horn of the plague boat and shivered. I will be with you, they promised, in this life and the next. Dead Man's Island is small, walkable in a matter of minutes. It should be easy to track the strange footsteps and shrieks that echo through the trees, but they seem to move without logic. High, low, near, far. As if the same woman is screaming 40 feet above you right before she whispers in your ear. Coming up, we'll look at what happened when one man finally built the nerve to cut down the island's trees. Now back to the story. While many parties had been forced to share Dead Man's Island for a long time, these concerns came to a head in 1899 when a Canadian businessman, Theodore Ludgate, made a deal with the Canadian federal government to harvest the lumber on Dead Man's Island. Unfortunately, the land had already been handed over to the local government. The city of Vancouver planned to incorporate the island into their plans for Stanley Park. When the mayor of Vancouver, James Garden, heard word of Ludgate's intentions, he took the Vancouver police to occupy the island, telling Ludgate to chop that tree if he dared. Confident of his claim, Ludgate did. And a 25-year legal dispute was ignited, which still serves as a case study in the division of powers between local and federal government in Canada today. But the spirits of the island cared very little about who owned what. They were just happy to have someone to play with. Henry had volunteered for every other police duty before being stationed at Deadman's Island. Unfortunately, the force was small for a growing city like Vancouver, and they needed more patrolmen to hold off Ludgate's loggers. He was drafted into the cause. It had been ten years since the fight for the island began. Henry had shown up for work and been pushed onto a boat that would take him to a land he'd never wanted to visit. The surrounding officers wouldn't dare to question their superiors, but he saw their trembling hands and anxious feet tapping at the boards. If there was anything people wanted more than to avoid the land of the dead, it was to avoid visiting it in the middle of the night, for that 
was when Ludgate's loggers had been known to make their attempts at occupation. Though Henry hoped to have spent the night watching an inebriated shopkeeper try to negotiate his way out of the cell, or keeping a pickpocket from nicking the keys to the evidence locker, he needed his job, and his job needed him, to keep a miser with an axe from chopping down either the trees or his fellow officers. The men disembarked and broke off into patrolling pairs. There was no telling as to which corner of the island Ludgate and his men might be using. It was a small spot of land, nine and a half acres if one was kind. But the loggers were crafty, hiding evidence and working quietly in the dark. Each pair had been given a light and a whistle to begin their sweep. If they ran into trouble, they were to whistle and wave their light, drawing the other pairs to them, and perhaps alarming trespassers enough for them to flee towards the boats waiting in the dark. Henry tried to tamp down his nerves as his group traveled farther from the shore. Everything died at some point, and the dead had to go somewhere. Wolf, his patrolling partner, laughed at the stutter in Henry's voice as he tried to nonchalantly discuss which pub they should go to when they were off. The wind hadn't been strong before they stepped onto the shore, a mild night breeze whispering over the harbor. Now it burned his skin with its force. Henry could almost make out words carried on the wind. Save them. Save us. He considered asking Wolf what he thought, but the man's flippant tone dissuaded him. If someone started to question his sanity, Henry could be out of a job. There was an incessant rattling following them. They stopped to examine the path, but they couldn't find any animals. Wolf suggested it was some kind of insect, but Henry had a different idea. The bones of the dead were clanging together announcing their displeasure at their new guests. Save them. Save us. Wolf laughed and pointed to one of the other lights in the distance, shaking in one of their compatriots' hands. Henry tried to join in, but his laugh was too much, verging on hysteria. The wind's whispers grew louder in his ears. North. He took the lead, following the wind's directions. Wolf appeared to hear nothing, but some part of Henry suspected the man wasn't listening at all. Henry looked to Wolf, praying that he'd heard the rhythm of an axe in the distance. He hoped he wasn't losing his mind or following some malevolent spirit to an unseen end. Wolf had to have heard that. Henry turned his head, but the man was whistling now softly, but whistling all the same. When he saw Henry looking at him, he stopped. Closer. Something brushed against Henry's shoulder, but nothing was there when he spun around. Wolf looked at him quizzically. Henry recovered, slowing his breath with as much subtlety as he could. Closer. Henry's eyes searched for some sign of loggers, some sign of anyone, some sign that he wasn't losing his mind. 
closer. The wind died suddenly, and so did the voices. The two policemen came to a stop in front of a clearing that had been dense forest the day before. Piles of lumber stood off to the side. Can you imagine their faces? He heard one of them say with a laugh. Those rattles in the trees are the best money Luddy ever spent. No way the coppers are coming to this side of the island. Henry felt rage bubbling inside of him. Because of them, he was forced to walk through a land of nightmares. If they had just done what they were told, he would be in the warm police headquarters, rather than on a cold and nearly deserted island. Henry stalked towards the group. They hadn't even noticed the policeman's approach. All Henry heard was the chopping. It pounded in his ears, as if the blade was close enough to show his reflection, his wild eyes and twisted mouth. Closer. These men had tried to manipulate the Vancouver police. The police who had helped to stop fires and end riots with only 30 men less than five years ago. And for what? For money. For a spot of land that hadn't belonged to them in the first place. Henry made his presence known by yanking the axe out of one of the man's hands. Closer. He raised it high and brought it down over the logger's head. Wolf had grabbed him, pulling the weapon out of his hands and pushing him away from the loggers. Henry couldn't hear the calls of his partner, nor of the loggers or his fellow policemen as they converged on Wolf's calls for help. There was only the chopping and the wind. The wind crying with frozen tears. It was snowing, and he was screaming. Henry kicked and bit, but they had securely restrained him. They placed handcuffs around his wrists, and two of them held him down, while the other went to speak with the loggers. He wanted to break free and finish what he had started. He screamed at them as the snow blew around them in swirling gusts. And then there was nothing but black. He woke up slowly. His hands shifted to the back of his skull. There was a bump. The cold metal of the handcuffs was a surprise to him. He was on a boat. His fellow officers were sitting next to him, watching him closely. He didn't know what had happened or why he was being treated this way. He looked to the men he thought were his friends and asked why he was restrained. They looked at him in disbelief. Henry felt sick as the men recounted his attempted murder. The last thing he remembered was stepping onto the shore. Theodore Ludgate eventually won the right to use the land after a 10-year legal battle and took possession in 1911. He cleared it of all lumber, but didn't meet the terms of his lease, so it reverted back to the federal government. The island was considered to be part of Vancouver's Stanley Park, but the Canadian Navy requisitioned the island in 1944 for a military base that still operates today. But the debate as to who owns Dead Man's Island continues. British Columbia is one of the few provinces of Canada where no land was ceded by its original inhabitants via treaty. 
1859, the colonial governor of British Columbia declared that all the province's land and resources belong to the British Crown. Recent court rulings, however, have held that unceded land does not actually belong to the Canadian government, leaving areas like Dead Man's Island in legal limbo. The Musqueam asserted their rights to the island in 2006, but both the Musqueam and the city of Vancouver were overruled by the Canadian Navy. It remains closed to the public to this day, aside from the infrequent recruitment event, but the training cadets still say they hear screams at night. Frontier never stays frontier for long. Maybe it never was in the first place. Just as settlers did their best to ignore the claims of the first peoples who occupied their intended lands, so they ignored the role of the island in their traditions. But the predictions of the Salish medicine men may have been more true than even they may have expected. Dead Man's Island does have a power, the likes of which most have not seen. It draws souls to it with legends and silent calls. And while a traditional tree burial ended in a communal grave, many, many souls have remained on the island, trapped by punishment or circumstance or regret. Just as the tides change, the bodies on the island decompose. Flesh consumed by maggots and chewed by carrion birds, bone falling to the ground and worn away under rain and running feet. It is the curse of such magic places, to live on and yet be forgotten. The markers of what make a place special become rumors, divorced from their true meaning. The fire flowers have left these shores, and you won't find a coffin in the trees above. But be careful if you think the dead have stayed dead. If you believe the markers of so-called civilization extend to powers this old and this deep. For there are forces so ancient that so-called civilization doesn't remember them. Be careful and hope they don't remember you. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lilda Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>